Well, I love Ascension Sunday. Um, it's one of my favorite days on, in the year. And not, not because I love the church calendar for its own sake, though the calendar is a profitable tool for the church. It's more that without Ascension Sunday, we would probably never, or rarely anyway, stop and reflect on the immense and really the exhilarating significance of our Lord's Ascension. And that would be a tragic thing. One writer has said that the 4th of July, the 4th of July occupies a greater place in the consciousness of most American Christians than the Ascension. This past Thursday was 40 days after Easter. It was Ascension Day. Anybody have a barbecue? I won't ask for a show of hands. A weak or shrunken down view of the ascension impoverishes the church. The ascension of Jesus is not just a nice footnote to the resurrection. As if Jesus were saying, well, I'm done now. I can go back to heaven. The ascension is a saving action. It enables, it crowns, it, it facilitates Jesus' perpetual saving ministry. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, in the ascension, purifies the heavenly sanctuary that we might have access to God. No ascension, no access to God. It tells us that in the ascension, in the ascension, Jesus secures eternal redemption. No ascension, no redemption. Hebrews also tells us that because Christ is ascended, He ever lives to intercede for us. And so without the ascension, the prayer life of the church would be some sort of monologue. It would be impossible. Hebrews tells us that the ascended Christ is the one who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. No ascension, no complete salvation. And as we saw in the readings this morning, without the ascension, there could be no Pentecost. No ascension, no gift of the Spirit. Thus, no church, no inspired New Testament. Without the ascension, Christ's work could not be spread to the nations. No ascension, no global witness to the ruler of the kings on earth. And as you saw in the Acts reading, no ascension, no future glorious coming. I mean, just imagine a resurrected, immortal, glorified Jesus but not yet ascended. Walking around Palestine for thousands of years. I mean, it would be a curiosity, that's for sure. If you were entrepreneurial, I'm sure you could have a pilgrimages business. But that Jesus, even that Jesus, could accomplish none of these things. They are accomplished in the ascension. So with that, let's go to the text, which is at the end of Luke's Gospel. He provides a very brief 
account of the ascension, he precedes that account with this little bit of rich teaching from Jesus to his disciples. And this text, much like the Great Commission, is really something of a vision statement from the Lord. And that's why we've called it the Ascension Commission. So I want to look at this instruction um, under five headings. I'm going to make five quick points. The church's biblical theology, and secondly, her evangelistic charter. Then her witness, her apostolic witness. And then fourth, her her spiritual power. And then finally, the ascension proper. The ascension proper. So first, the church has a biblical theology. Look at the text. This is again, Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus tells them everything they saw happening in his suffering and in his resurrection was a fulfillment of what he had told them previously. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is a shorthand way of saying the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. So Jesus is telling us, the Scriptures point to me. They're fulfilled in me. I am their goal. You have to read the Scripture from Christ backwards, if you will, in the light of Christ. And the Scriptures, which are in view here, which provide the church with her biblical theology, are the Old Testament. The Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, is a Christian book. The Old Testament's a Christian book. And that's a radical claim. And much of the modern church is queasy with it. Even if they confess it with their lips, they tend to deny it in practice. There are, I suspect, no no pocket Old Testaments. Right? Does anybody have a pocket Old Testament? No, you get a pocket New Testament, a pocket Psalms, a pocket Proverbs, a pocket full of promises, a pocket full of encouraging verses. There are no pocket Old Testaments. There are no Ascension barbecues. There are no pocket Old Testaments. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating For many, it would make not one bit of difference if Jesus were Norwegian. If he dropped straight out of heaven at age 33 into Oslo, died for our sins, went back to heaven. Everything would be basically the same. Jesus dies for me. I believe in Jesus. I will go to heaven like Jesus is in heaven. Who needs the whole Old Testament? What's with all this Israel nonsense? Give me the Norwegian Jesus. I mean, that's what we have, basically, in American Christianity, the Norwegian Jesus. Who needs all this Old Testament stuff? Well, Jesus himself says, we do. He's incomprehensible apart from Israel. We need to see what he's the fulfillment of, and he's the fulfillment of Israel's history. He he says it here in this text. Not a fragment here and a stray text there. The whole set of Hebrew scriptures point to and are fulfilled in Christ. So try to imagine being a Christian, living and proclaiming the gospel in community, worshiping the triune God, worshiping Jesus as Lord, and doing it powerfully, and doing it without the New Testament. 
It's not a fictional mind experiment, is it? It's the life of the earliest Christians. It's the life of the early church. Look at verse 45. You can see there that Jesus opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So the, the one to whom Scripture points must open by His Spirit our minds to understand these things. Right? This is not an, uh, an academic exercise. The ascended Lord Himself enables us to see His glory. This is why we have a prayer for illumination before we read the Scriptures. Right? It's not simply so that we can sort of gather ourselves. It's because the Scriptures are a bloody crossroads where the Spirit and Word of God are requiring repentance and a restructuring of our mind and our will and our affections. Scripture reading is warfare. It requires light to shine into the darkness. It requires the opening up of our minds by the ascended Christ. This is why Scripture reading is so difficult. Because it's not like reading any other book. So having said everything was written and everything concerning Him was fulfilled he opens their minds, and in verse 46, he gets a little more specific about what this means. It was written that the Messiah will suffer, he says, and rise from the dead on the third day. Again, it's not necessary for us to look for a text here or there, although there are such texts. But it's the whole thrust, Jesus says, the whole thrust of the law, the whole thrust of the priesthood. The monarchy, the exile, the judgment, the promises, the restoration points to the fact that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and be raised. It's in the warp and woof of the Old Testament, Jesus says. And so this Christ-centered passion for Scripture is essential to the church's life. Churches become something else when this drops out. Right? They become collections of believers in the Norwegian Jesus. And that's not the authentic article. So we have to cherish the Old Testament. Looking for the ascended Christ to illumine us. That we might see Him there. Secondly, that's the church's biblical theology. The second thing is the church's evangelistic charter. Verse 47. Verse 47 says that repentance and forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, would be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This itself, this proclamation was promised in the Old Testament. Right? The calling of Abraham entailed the idea that through Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The Psalms, and especially Isaiah, see this age where the Gentiles would be gathered in to the people of God. So this is the context for the church's evangelism. When we do evangelism, we're doing what was written in the Old Testament. We're summoning the nations to Zion. You can see in the middle of verse 47 that the church preaches in His name. Right, the, church, the church is an embassy of heaven. She speaks not in her own name, but in the name of Christ, the head and king. She preaches not herself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. But notice this in the text. 
she preaches. Nothing the church does can substitute for public and one-on-one relational preaching or proclamation of the gospel. We live in an age where people don't like preaching. Preaching, after all, can be preachy and sounds self-righteous and doesn't sit well with moderns who don't want to be preached to. There's nothing we can do about that. The church preaches. She announces. She heralds. She declares. We're not in the friend-making business at this point. She warns. She instructs. She summons. She points. She preaches. And without this, she withers and dies. And so we have to give ourselves to proclaiming the gospel, to participating in the ministry of the gospel. Preaching is not just for me. We're all called to proclaim and bear witness to this gospel. And what we preach is repentance, the text says, and the forgiveness of sins. Nothing in God's eyes is more beautiful than repentance because we are all sinners and we all constantly stand in need of repentance. Men need nothing more than the remission of sins. We do preach. They may find it offensive, but we are bringing good news. And this proclamation is universal, Catholic. It goes to all the nations, Jesus says, beginning at Jerusalem. All nations, Iraq, Iran, China, Sudan, all the nations, even America. And for most of us, it especially means America. It means Orange County. It means our secularized neighbors, our co-workers, our family members. And so this text reminds us we have to think, pray, and act like we're actually on some kind of a global mission. That we're not simply meandering through life or wandering. We're under the authority of and empowered by the ascended Christ. And so what is it What is it that God wants us to do? He wants us to proclaim the gospel in Christ's name, to seek opportunities to do so, and to be vigilant about it. We have a number of opportunities here. Locally, I'd encourage you to check out the table in the narthex. I hope the table's in the narthex, um, which has some local opportunities where you can... Do work with homeless people or at medical clinics or at a crisis pregnancy center where there are numerous opportunities to demonstrate the gospel in word and deed. Now, some of these will push some of us out of our comfort zone. Well, that's the point, beloved. That's the point. The gospel makes us uncomfortable too. It's important for us to break up our routines and seek new, fresh ways to proclaim the gospel. We exist, the text says, to evangelize the nations, including our neighbors. And so we need to stir ourselves up to renewed commitment to this work beginning here, beginning with the stuff that's right in front of us. Third, 
the church's witness, or it's what I called its apostolic witness. You can see this in verse 48. Jesus says, and you're witnesses of these things. Right? These apostles are unique, deputized witnesses. They saw the things concerning Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection. They touched and they handled the word of life. No one else has done this. And the whole church depends on this foundational witness of the apostles. But I want to say a word about witnessing because we're called to do the same thing. It's very similar to what we just said about preaching, but witnesses, if you'll pardon the pun, witnesses take a stand. They declare what they've seen and what they know. Witnesses don't speculate. They testify legally and solemnly before heaven and earth. And these men would testify at the cost of their own blood. In fact, in the New Testament, the word for witness is martyr. Because the idea of witnessing became synonymous with dying for Christ. Witnessing is serious business. Now, we're not foundational witnesses like the apostles, yet we do bear witness. We are called to be witnesses, to proclaim the good news. And we have breath in our lungs for this purpose. We're a lot like John the Baptist. We're not the light. We just point to the light. So start pointing. Point the unbelievers in your life to the light of the world. Fourth, I want to look at the, the church's power, its spiritual power. Verse 49, Jesus says, I'm going to send you what my Father promised. The Spirit is the one the Father has promised, not only through Jesus, but throughout the Old Testament. Right here, remember Moses' desire that the Spirit be placed on all the Lord's people, that they would all be prophets, Moses says in Numbers. Ezekiel promised that God would put His Spirit within Israel, giving them a new heart and washing them. Ezekiel saw Israel in exile as a valley of dead bones, and the Spirit of God would bring them back to life. Joel, a text Lord willing we'll look at next week, spoke of the outpouring of the Spirit that would be fulfilled at Pentecost. So the Spirit clothes us, the text continues, with power from on high. And without this Spirit, the Spirit that came down on the apostles, endued them with power to preach, to bear witness, power to suffer, power to have their routines disrupted, Without this, the church is nothing. Without the Spirit, the freshness of the Spirit, the church is really a harmless and, and in many ways a pitiful religious society. So this commission that Jesus gives to the church, what I'm calling the Ascension Commission, it's impossible in our own strength. It is not something we can do. We don't fundamentally lack administrative clarity about this. That's not the fundamental deficiency here. Right? It's not like we have an ineffective committee structure. 
The church needs the power of the Spirit so that if we want to see men and women saved and the nation saved, we have to beg God to pour His Spirit out on His church and then we have to wait. And while we're waiting, ask Him again and again for the Spirit to descend and to come. So this brings us to the last point. Luke's condensed version of the ascension. Jesus leads them out near Bethany. And he's the great high priest. He's about to ascend into the heavenly holy of holies. And he places, and this is what he's doing here, he places his priestly benediction on them. And we now live under that benediction. We now live under the ascended Christ. And his, his kindness, his face shines upon us as we seek to obey the ascension commission. So the church has a biblical theology. It has an evangelistic charter, an apostolic witness, and it must be empowered by the Spirit. But there is a center which holds all of this together. And you can see that there in the text in verses 52 and 53. Look at verse 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. The ascension should fill us with great joy. If it doesn't, we should check ourselves. We may be in spiritual peril. They're filled with extraordinary joy. This is death-conquering joy. And without it, the things the Lord calls us to will become drudgery. When we try to do these things in our own strength, they grind us down. And so Luke's gospel... It ends in verse 53, right where it began, in the temple. It says they were continually in the temple. Meaning regularly, with great eagerness, they gathered for public worship. They were continually in the temple praising God. Joyful public worship is the hub of the wheel. It's the center of the church's life. That's where the church centers its life. That's, a, that's the place around which everything gathers while she waits. And then she sent. But remember, as important as joyful public worship is, it isn't the whole wheel. This text reminds us it isn't all we're called to be as witnesses. Out of that worship, we build and we learn and we confess our, our biblical theology. Out of that worship, we do our evangelism. We bear apostolic witness in the power of the Spirit. These are the things that are to flow from gathering with the people of God in the temple of God and praising the name of God. Worship is, is the center. I'll be the first to defend it as the chief end of the church's life. But it is not everything. It is not the end of the church's life. It exists to impel us out. And so, we're summoned to follow this apostolic example of worshiping Jesus and then spending ourselves for this great ascension commission. Joy to the world, to the whole world, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The Lord is ascended. Amen.